Welcome to The Reacher's Handbook, a podcast about making social media meaningful, finding your joy, and what to do when the life you'd imagined for yourself is stuck in committee. My favorite part of church was always the candles of joy and concern. They're my first memory of my home church. I remember it so vividly, sitting in my seat with the light pouring down from the stained glass window and the plants climbing up the walls as people shared these pieces of their lives. The service leader would encourage us, of course, to keep to the big milestones and, you know, the personal spiritual stuff. We tried to do this, we sort of tried, but really people talked about whatever they wanted to talk about. One time, a guy did a poem about the ongoing saga of his furnace repair. Another time a kid lit a candle for having discovered that her cat likes pancakes. Eleanor would always try to figure out how to use the personal milestone time to tell us who we should vote for in this subtle manner that she thought was subtle. (laughs) She never succeeded at the subtle part, but the telling us who to vote for, she nailed that every single time. I remember very early on in one of my first services, this guy getting up to say that he was feeling much better from his operation and thank you to everyone who visited him in the hospital. He listed some names in gratitude, and then he reached into his pocket and said he'd also prepared a list he'd like to read of everyone who had not visited him in the hospital but should have, and he looked over at the service leader whose face had broken out into this temporary terror until she realized that he was grinning broadly. And I sat in my corner at the back, watching the stained glass color those grinning faces, and I had this sudden and very strong thought. Someday I'm going to have shared jokes with these people. I didn't think about shared theology. It didn't occur to me maybe it would be good if I believed the same things as these people. I didn't even think about shared memories, the crying together at funerals or the hugging each other at the dedications of my children which would come. No, I I thought about shared jokes. I come from a family that expresses love through practical jokes. I love to laugh. I also love church. I don't believe in God, but with the UUs, that's not an issue. So I dived right in, ultimately ending up at seminary, where they asked us to think about our calling. I mean, presumably we all wanted to be ministers, but why ministers? And they would say these beautiful, wise things like, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who've come alive. And I would think, does it? There are people starving in Africa, and what makes me feel alive is scrolling through funny memes on Facebook. Eh? I'm a child of the 80s. People starving in Africa was brought up to me every single time I did not eat my crusts. I cannot get it out of my mind. And focusing on coming alive in the face of all the world's needs, whatever they are in your heart, it feels pretty self-indulgent. Also, we weren't just supposed to figure out how to come alive, we were supposed to do it alongside a whole crap ton of reading and writing and lectures and essays, and I'm a terrible student. And so one evening in particular, in 2015, I was trying to study history, and I was finding that our history was not what I had thought. Like any religion, we have these stories that we tell, and I had my favorites and my images of these favorites, like... Michael Servetus, the Unitarian martyr, chased and persecuted for his brave act of speaking the truth to John Calvin. It turns out, if you read Servetus' writings in his own words, uh, he's really smart. He's very articulate. 
He's so obnoxious. Like, he doesn't just tell the truth. He stalks John Calvin. He sends him letters arguing every little point. He writes and distributes books criticizing Calvin. At one point, Calvin has a warrant out for Servetus' arrest, and Servetus goes to one of Calvin's talks and sits in the front row. The guy couldn't shut up. Not in an I speak up for truth kind of way, in this ultra patronizing, I know better than everyone way. He was like an old-fashioned Facebook troll. Like, exactly like a Facebook troll. Servetus did not deserve what happened to him. Of course, nobody deserves that kind of pain. But after reading his actual words and all the arrogance and the condescension, like there was a tiny part of me that kind of sympathized with John Calvin. I'd been hoping for a story of a martyr that was extraordinary in some way. I didn't want that guy. I already know that guy. I've sat in meetings with that guy. Also, I've been that guy myself more than once. That guy is not an extraordinary story of Unitarian Universalism. No, no. He's the ordinary story. We all know that guy. Thoreau, for example. I'd always admired the transcendentalists, how they forged these intentional, beautiful lives full of integrity. Learning a little bit more about it? Thoreau could retreat to the woods to suck the marrow out of life because he was living on land Emerson gave him for free. Let's not think too carefully about how that land got to be in Emerson's possession in the first place. Living on a thing your friend stole from someone is not self-sufficiency. With the real story as backdrop, Thoreau's whole shtick of, no, no, I'm just going to sit by the water and write and suck the marrow out of life, has a whole different feel when you think about the work of the people that are supporting what he's doing, not by their own choice or by any fairness. When you think about all the stuff he didn't have to do, the children he didn't have to take care of, when you think about Emerson's wife, who did all his laundry. Louisa May Alcott, meanwhile, is living just down the street, making all the same theological points about simplicity and intentionality in the writing that became her best-selling novel, Little Women. But she writes in a way that isn't academic or prosaic. She writes accessible, funny stories, probably because she knows she's going to need to sell them to feed her family because her father is holed up in the study, reading philosophy and yakking away with Thoreau. Which, lamentably, no one paid him to do, if you can believe it. <laughs> Louisa May Alcott's dad once tried to board a train and told the conductor he didn't have any money because he was too theologically mature for such worldly things, but he would pay for his fare by engaging fellow passengers in conversation for their edification. Yeah, that guy. In my ministerial formation, I didn't see myself in Servetus or Emerson. I saw myself in Louisa May Alcott. Everyday stories sprinkled with humor. So I hate read much of our history, writing biting satire as I went. As genres go, by the way, biting satire of our UU history, pretty much the definition of a niche market. The Venn diagram of people who love vicious humor and people who have read the books on the Ministerial Fellowship Committee reading list, very close to a figure eight. But there were a few of us. We sent things back and forth sometimes. So one evening, a few of us UU humor geeks coordinated a prank, applying to live at the UU Lucy Stone Housing Co-op in Boston. It was a practical joke. We filled out the applications as various mostly dead, mostly Unitarians and Universalists. We applied as Michael Servetus, and under food allergies we listed barbecue. We applied as Emerson, listing Thoreau under pets. 
We applied as people we thought were missing from mainstream history, too. Reverend Olympia Brown, the first woman in the U.S. to be ordained. And Dorothy Dix, whose tireless lobbying transformed conditions for institutionalized people in the United States and Canada and several other countries. These women's names are not our well-known heroes, but when you line their lives up against Thoreau in the woods or Servetus writing his letters, their tangible accomplishments leave those other guys in the dust. So our applications were answered quite courteously, actually, which frankly was unexpected. We were invited to attend Sunday night singing and meet our potential housemates. Since we were not from Boston and also theoretically not alive, this was going to be tricky. But we claimed to have attended and we wrote a thank you note. The Holy Ghost, one of our applicants, wrote in the note that he was grateful to be invited and enjoyed himself, although he was sad that his presence had not been noticed. This was okay, he said. He is used to this at UU gatherings. We also sprinkled our note with tiny details that proved our attendance, courtesy of an insider spy that we had recruited by that point. So then all of this was followed by a week of messaging and coordinating and giggling and pranking, and it all left me feeling warm and connected. Connected with my peers and with my UU heritage, gently poking fun at things that I thought deserved to be knocked down a peg or two, lifting up stories that aren't always told. There was a shared culture there. When the people from the housing co-op used the term corporeal privilege, we got the joke because of the common things that we wrestle with. Our values were also lifted up in how we played the joke. As we coordinated as pranksters to know just how far to push things, wanting it to be just as funny for the butts of the joke as it was for the pranksters themselves. In the end, the prank left me feeling a part of Unitarian Universalism in a way seminary hadn't been able to do. And I didn't want it to end. So on a whim, I created a Facebook group and named it the UU Hysterical Society. This was a play on UU Historical Society, and they've changed their name like three times since then, so nobody gets the joke. All people ever do is tell me about the problematic origin of the word hysteria, which has been used for many generations to discredit and often harm women who are different in some way. Everything from epilepsy to not wishing to marry to too much mouthiness could have been hysteria in the past. Really, anything inconvenient to the people around you was hysteria. Yeah. It's not called the Hysterical Society by accident. It's not just about humor. Hysteria was the word for a woman who was the wrong shape. Being the wrong shape is why I made the Hysterical Society. It was a place for myself when I was failing to toe the line and I wasn't fitting in. There were 12 people in the group at first. People posted funny memes that were kind of UU-ish in nature. I checked in every few days to scroll through them and laugh. That's all it was. Today, though... The UU Hysterical Society has 150,000 people in it, and our content reaches just under 2 million people each month. And the Hysterical Society is only one branch of the various things that Mirth and Dignity, our not-for-profit, is currently doing. Okay, since this is a podcast about your passions meeting the world in a sustainable way, this would be the logical place to put the blueprint. This is where I tell you about how to take what you're called to do and observe what's in the world around you and design a strategy that merges the two. Except that's not how it happened. That's not even a little bit how it happened. Not for me, and not actually for any of the people I researched who created thriving examples of what I'd call new ministry. I didn't make the UU Hysterical Society in order to create a new ministry. I was making new ministries at the time, but this wasn't one of them. I just made it as a gift to myself. Because I loved to laugh and I needed the joy. I didn't make the UU Hysterical Society as a part of my ministerial formation process. I made it as a break from that formation process when it was starting to break me. 
and I didn't plan for its success, and I didn't understand what would happen before it happened. I didn't even really understand it as it was happening. And this story isn't unusual in the field. In fact, it's almost universal. When I studied people who'd succeeded at what I think of as new ministry, not a single one started the thing that became their ministry on purpose. Not in the form that it eventually took. Anyways, there was so much change, so much failure to really grasp what was going on. It's funny, actually. You can go back in their old videos. You can see the success happening in front of them, even as they don't actually understand that the thing they're doing is a real thing at all. For me, the UU Hysterical Society was at about 20,000 members before I started to suspect that it was something more than like my own personal funny space. At this point, someone posted that she nearly drove her car off the road after spotting a UU church. She said she thought Unitarian Universalism was a joke religion, made up for the purposes of the UU Hysterical Society, and that seeing a real church was like spotting a unicorn. She said she almost drove her car off the road yelling, they're real, they're real. And I thought, wow, we're telling 20,000 people about what Unitarian Universalism is. And then I thought, oh shit. 20,000 people are learning about what Unitarian Universalism is from us. I'm not qualified for that job. I didn't do the assigned reading. You would think this would be the point in the story where I matured and began treating it as a ministry. It's not. Maturing, not my favorite thing, not my strong suit. It is the point where I recruited Kathy, though, who is fortunately already mature and already has a broad understanding of ministry. If you are here from UUHS... You will be familiar with Kathy and now Lynn and their incredible skill at creating community that is fun and warm and lovely. Also, if you are from UUHS, heads up, the nuts and bolts part of the story has ended. We are going to transition now into the main theme of the podcast again, which is for people who want to do something meaningful of their own online. I would love it if you stayed, but I need to be clear that UUHS story time is over at least for now, although I will be picking it up again in a future episode when I am trying to smuggle all those for when thoughts and prayers are not enough stickers into the United States. Not exactly smuggle. It was complicated. Anyway, I was telling this UUHS story recently at an event, and I got a question about the failures that I had tried before UUHS. I'm saying failures in air quotes here, because in ecosystem thinking, which we talked about in episode one, Things aren't failures, they're explorations. Things that don't work don't disappear. They turn into knowledge and fuel and connections between people, and they're the building blocks of the next thing. Nature doesn't have garbage. Nature has compost. Tell that to the person in the committee saying that they've already tried blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the guy asked me to list some of the things that we tried, and I blanked. I couldn't think of anything. Then I panicked. Like, had I misremembered? Had I been wrong about being wrong? I got super meta, super quickly, and I ended up in this whole UU thought spiral. And as soon as the event ended, I pulled up Facebook to check my references. I counted 36 groups that I started on Facebook that are currently doing nothing. And that is just Facebook groups, which is only one type of the things that I was trying. So now I had 36 answers for this guy, but of course the guy was no longer there. And the real answer wasn't 36 groups anyways. The real answer was in the fact that I didn't remember. We get so scared of trying something and having it not work, but I failed 36 times and not only did nobody from that Cross Canada conversation remember a single example, I couldn't even remember a single example. Which brings me to the central point of this episode. 
which is that if you're thinking like an institution, you gather data, you, you ruminate hard, you create a really good plan, you come up with a great way to do things, which is good if you're living in a predictable world with problems that are content to wait while you are processing. But if you're thinking like an ecosystem, you don't plan and predict that way. You throw a bunch of seeds on the ground and you see what takes. Ecosystem thinking doesn't create a perfect solution. It just, it makes enough stuff and has things going on and then it can adapt as is needed. This way of thinking borders on UU heresy. This idea of doing a thing without much discussion and planning and voting. When do we vote about which seeds to plant? Voting about which seed to plant is more work than planting all of the seeds. Seriously, voting about which seed to plant is more work than planting all the seeds. Especially today, when planning like an institution isn't actually possible. We all agree we can't see a generation into the future, or even 10 years into the future, maybe even one year into the future. This is the perfect time to just start trying things. I know, it's heresy. Because we've all had this experience of sitting across from someone in a committee meeting as they grumpily declare that some new idea is no good, we tried it already, and it didn't work. And we're supposed to end the conversation at that point. That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to argue back, which, as you imagine, I would. I would argue, okay, how exactly didn't it work and why? What did we learn from that that we can build on? Because just because a seed doesn't work one time doesn't it mean it won't work next season or even next month. The context is changing so fast right now. You need to try all kinds of things. That would be my argument. It was probably your argument as well in some variation. So you've had a chance to try it out and you have found out, like me, that it doesn't work. Even though it's right. Servetus was right. Sometimes being right isn't what's called for. Sometimes really deep listening is what's called for. I hate those times. So I have learned that usually when people say we tried it and it didn't work, they don't mean, please make an articulate argument against me. What they mean is, we tried and it was too expensive. It hurt us. Maybe in terms of money or volunteer investment or morale. They mean the investment was too high and the failure was too painful. So don't invest so much. People who work in rapidly changing fields talk about the idea of placing small bets. In entrepreneurship, for example, they talk about a minimum viable product. Make the cheapest version that is good enough to sell. Use it to gauge the response of your consumer base before you start work on your main product and tweak it. The original UU Hysterical Society was a group of 12 people, and I scrolled through it once every few days for 15 minutes just to get a chance to laugh. It was a bare minimum viable product. That was all that we were until I started to see it working, and then I started to add some things. Even then, the things that I added were bare minimal products. So... We first launched the Hysterical Society store with a couple of t-shirt and mug designs, and we did it through a print-on-demand service. Printful gets an order, they print it, they ship it. It is so easy in terms of volunteer hours, and there's no financial risk. Nothing is bought before it's ordered. But it's crappy as a store, like as a way to make a profit. One by one is an incredibly expensive way to manufacture things. We make a dollar or two on each sale, 
And because of that, it was well over a year before the store even made enough money to cover the cost of its own website. It's a bad store. It barely makes a profit. But it was really easy. The only cost was the website, and there was no risk whatsoever beyond that. And throughout that year, we learned what people liked. Right now, we're planning a booth at General Assembly of Unitarians, and we don't have to guess which products to buy in bulk. We know there's like two really popular things, our robot mug and our hang on a minute while I overthink this t-shirt. We can buy those in larger amounts and then get smaller amounts of other things for the booth. It takes the guesswork out. We placed small bets and now we know which horses we should back. No amount of theory ever could have given us this information. The 36 Facebook groups, they were small bets too. Lots of them lasted for months. A couple lasted for a year or two. A few of them are still going. But most of them lasted only an hour. (laughs) I made them... Nobody noticed, I forgot they existed, and that was the end of it. Teeny, tiny bets. Remember the saying about don't focus on what the world needs, focus on what makes you come alive? You actually focus on both, but you start with what makes you come alive. Because most bets don't work out. You'll need to make quite a few during your information gathering phase, and they'll take more than a couple of years of effort to become sustainable, even if they do work. And then also they'll mutate. They won't look anything like they did when you started, so who cares about the specifics of the starting points? You do, because you need to pick one that you love. Find out how to fit that into the world's needs later. That doesn't happen in the planning stage. It happens out in the world. Get out into the world. You are going to need to navigate like a Roomba, blindly bumping into object after object, adjusting your plan, singing a happy little vacuuming song to yourself. And if you're going to navigate that way for long, you will need fully charged batteries. And doing what makes you come alive constantly recharges your batteries. I didn't think this way 10 years ago when I was making these decisions. I came struggling and kicking into this way of thinking through experience. 10 years ago, I thought, "Uh uh-huh, but there are people starving in Africa. And that wasn't just a saying to me. I have a number of friends who live in or are from various countries in East Africa, and the needs of those places are not theoretical for me. So what right did I have to take time off for giggles when I could be spending that time sitting on boards of international aid charities? Other good things. I did some of those good things, by the way. I did the charity board thing. For the most part, I was not a huge asset. In terms of international aid, the most effective thing I have ever done by a huge margin is start a Facebook group trading funny memes on the internet. Today, mirth and dignity fundraisers are a crucial part of the developmental budget of Flaming Chalice International, which is a UU charity that does development work in Africa. We don't do aid ourselves as mirth and dignity. We figured out that aid is best run by people who are from the areas you are helping They understand the needs better than we ever can. They make decisions better than we ever can. We just raise money to support their work. And we do it using memes on Facebook. And there is no way I would have ever created this weird plan out of theory or research. It arose out of circumstance and opportunity. It was able to happen because the memes were fun and the community formed around the joy of that. The rest of it we just figured out as we went. Doing what makes you come alive draws more alive. Doing what makes you feel tired draws more tired. Don't forget that when you are imagining what to do with your one wild and precious life.
I want you to imagine that you are at my house for tea. We're going to talk about your idea, your half-baked idea or ideas, whatever. And you're not sure if you should go with option A or option B or option C, and you're describing them to me to get my feedback. After all, I have studied a lot of people's projects over the years, and I've been doing this stuff in one form or another for well over a decade. So I know what works, and I know so much about what does not work. So you want me to help you weigh the pros and cons of each option. You want to know which of those top three potential paths has the highest odds of growing into your thriving ministry, your personal spot where your passion meets the world's needs in a sustainable way. I can answer that for you right now. I already know the merits of the options. It's all equal. The odds of each one growing in the way you're envisioning? Zero percent. Whichever one you choose, it's not going to be the thing. It's going to be the starter thing that gets you out there roombaing about, getting feedback that puts you in the path of the thing. It doesn't matter what you pick. It just has to be low investment, something that doesn't hem you in. But beyond that, the details don't matter. 90% of what I would be paying attention to as you describe the options to me would be the expression on your face as you're talking. I'd be looking for the sparkle. You'd be trying to figure out what would you enjoy being successful at, but that's the wrong question. Most things are fun to be successful at. You need to know what creative process excites you even while it's achieving no success at all. What has a grind that isn't a grind to you? What charges your batteries while you're doing it? Pick that. Pick whatever variation of that has the lowest barrier to entry and then place some bets. Get out there, start gathering information, start building skills. So in terms of nuts and bolts, this way of thinking means if you ask me which social media platform is best, I will ask you what do you already use and where are your friends? If you ask me about video versus podcast, I will ask you which one would be the most fun for you to create on then you only have five people following your work. If you ask me about which website software to use, I would answer the one you already know how to use. And if you don't use any of them, then I would say the one your generous tech supporty friend already knows how to use. You will change your software later when you know more about your needs. You will change the things you're doing as things evolve out in the world. For now, just make the choices that keep the bets small and plentiful and keep the game filled with joy. Okay, that's your assignment for this week pick a small bet and place it. If you don't know which of several bets to pick, pick the smallest one, because that's the one you're most likely to do. Pick something joyful. Unless you run out of time and then you don't get the chance. If that's the case, tune in next week. Next week, I'll talk about finding the time. You've been listening to The Reacher's Handbook, a Mirth and Dignity production. For more information about Mirth and Dignity, the UU Hysterical Society, or the UU comedy podcast, The Cracked Cup, that Liz co-hosts with Ann Barker, see links in the show notes. If you want to be on our mailing list, or if you want to learn more about upcoming preaching or congregation visits by Liz, also check out the show notes. The Reacher's Handbook was created using a generous grant from the UU Funding Panel and the support of our Mirth and Dignities Patreon community. Information about both of those is also in the show notes. Also a big thank you to Trudy Diamond for her long-suffering editing of Liz's scripts. Music for The Reacher's Handbook is done by Blue Dot Sessions, and editing and producing is done by yours truly, Anwin Dyko. Thanks for listening, and get unstuck from that committee.